hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 341, we bring on two of our colleagues to discuss a exciting new development in the world of vitreous tamponades. Full disclosure, they are in a startup company that, of course, stands to benefit financially if this tamponade is successful. But we're going to talk about multiple things. What are kind of the current strengths and limitations of our vitreous tamponades, what they're hoping to achieve. And again, there's full disclosure. Um, I try to generally stick away from commercial sort of episodes, and hopefully this kind of towed the line in an appropriate fashion. You know, I, I think it was a good discussion. I think it's something that we need to be talking about more. Uh, I have no disclosures relevant to their company. They obviously do, but if you listen to the discussion, I hope you'll feel that it was steered in a pretty uh, reasonable and non-biased fashion. Uh, hopefully, they'll be offering CME credits for this episode, given the way we conducted it. Uh, CME credits always available in the episode description, if you click there. Um, and there's also a list of financial disclosures. Of course, the most relevant ones being that Dr. Stefeder and Dr. Strafsky, both are co-founders of this startup. But again, a great discussion on Vitreous Tamponades. Hope you enjoy uh, the episode coming up right now. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is back with uh, two retina specialists joining us today. Uh, joining me on the line first, I got Dr. Tony Stefeder, who's a practicing uh, retinal physician in private practice in Boston. Tony, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And then his partner in crime, also in a private practice in Boston, and part of the same company we're going to talk about a little bit today, uh, is uh, Tommy Struski. I should have gotten your pronunciation first. Very close enough. Struski is great. Yeah, thanks for having me today. No, good to see you both. Um, so the reason I'm bringing you on, and just for disclosure, you guys um, had start, have a startup that's looking at uh, a new retinal novel, retinal sealant. Um, and we'll put that out for disclosures, then there are CME disclosures as well. Um, but really, it's just to talk about the idea of vitreous substitutes, how we seal retinal breaks during surgery. I think it's an interesting concept. Uh, we talk a lot about on this show um, how we use the tools we have available to us today. And one of the things that comes up are the limitations of those tools. And it's important to think about ways to expand and improve what we do in our field. So, so Tony, just talk a little bit first about what we do in surgery, right? So today, vitrectomy for a retinal detachment with retinal breaks involves removal of the vitreous, removal of traction, placement of retinal laser to seal retinal breaks or cryotherapy, and then usually a vitreous substitute of some sort, air, gas, or oil to allow the breaks to seal. And there's a lot of debate about how long they need that tamponade effect to, to seal. Um, so what do you view as kind of the limitations or the shortcomings of what we do today? Obviously it works for the vast majority of cases, but let's start, for example, with a gas tamponade. Like, what do you see when you're, you were a trainee? Like what, what are the problems with gas tamponade? Yeah, so this kind of gets back to how our startup started from the very beginning was we were in the waiting room um, of Dean Elliott's clinic at Mass Lanier, and we realized that everyone was complaining more about their back and their neck than they were about their eye on the day after surgery. Um, and, you know, I think everyone's probably aware the, the main limitation with gas is the fact that you have to float that gas bubble up against the retinal break. Um, and so if you've got a retinal break in the inferior three or four o'clock hours, you know, the patient's really got to be face down so that that bubble is actually floating over those retinal breaks and preventing fluid from having access to the break. 
until your retinopexy forms. Um, so obviously, you know, it's not really a burden on us as the surgeon, um, but it's a huge burden on our patients um, to ask them to, to be face down or laying on one side or alternating sides um, for a week. And, um, you know, it's not uncommon um, for a patient to say that that week after retinal detachment surgery was one of the worst weeks of their entire life. Um, and so I think it was, it was, it made an impression on us as residents that, man, this is what we're doing to these people is, is one of the worst weeks of their lives, let their life, you know, maybe we should, should think about whether there might be um, a better approach in terms of other limitations with gas. Um, you know, of course you can't see through that gas bubble. Um, and that affects depth perception. It keeps people out of work. Um, it, if it's your only eye, obviously it's a huge problem. Um, and then I don't know. I also feel that people tend to have like their big family vacation to Disney world scheduled like the week after they get a retinal detachment. Um, and so how many times I've told someone that they're not able to fly on this great trip, um, because they have gas in the eye. Um, it's, it's definitely, it seems like it, it uh, happens all the time. So I'd say between, you know, positioning, um, not being able to see, uh, through the bubble and then not being able to fly or travel to high altitudes, um, are, are the big lifestyle factors. And then of course, tamponading a six o'clock break. I mean, there's a reason why the six o'clock breaks are our enemy in fear PVR, but also the fact that it's really hard for a patient to, to keep that bubble floating down there. So those are probably the, the key limitations right now. Yeah. I mean, those are all huge. And we have a podcast coming up now on like managing patients at altitude, completely different set of rules for our colleagues who work in Denver and Salt Lake and anywhere on the West coast in the mountains of Vermont. Uh, in Hawaii, where they're taking puddle jumping flights. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I'm in Miami, I, and I've talked about this before. I get a ton of patients who come from overseas, you know, the Caribbean, where there's no retinal surgeons. And then all of a sudden, you get boxed in a little bit in terms of what your options are. You're like, well, how many weeks can you stay here? How many patients can afford to spend two months on the mainland because they or take a boat or find a boat that will take them back home? Um, and we'll talk about oil in a second. Oil is always an option. A straight buckle is always an option, and, or not sometimes an option, not always. You talk about that six o'clock break, you know, people may argue, well, um, positioning, right? You talked about positioning disadvantages. Some people just can't position, but there's also real uh, morbidity with positioning that we don't talk about a lot as a field because we know it works. So we don't like to talk about things that are downsides to what we do. And then right. the other thing is, um, you know, we could add a buckle, but the, you know, adding a buckle and a vitrectomy, we do it in a lot of situations may improve your success rate, but, but may not it, it's always nice to push the envelope. And if you could reach a point where that extra surgery, that extra sort of morbidity with the buckle isn't necessary, it's nice to think of ways to avoid it. Um, Tommy, in, in addition to the things Tony was talking about gas, feel free to add anything else you think about. Um, he talked about vision. You know, I think that's something we don't really talk or think about a lot. We just kind of tell patients, well, you're not going to see for three or four weeks. And that's a big issue for older patients from a fall risk, from getting around driving. What about oil too? You can talk, we can start talking about oil. So like a lot of people say, well, okay, if you need to fly, we'll leave some oil bubble. Camp position, we'll use an oil bubble. If you need to see, we'll use an oil bubble. And we obviously, I'm very grateful, I and mean, you are, you guys are very grateful as surgeons that we have oil available. Oil comes with its own sets of issues, and I'm always amazed by. I feel like the older surgeons get, especially I see them in private practice or patients who get referred in, they really don't like using oil because of the things they've seen. So, like maybe add on top of the gas if you have anything else that, or just get right into oil. What are kind of the downsides of using silicone oil? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the downsides that Tony described for gas are uh, reduced uh, with oil, but they're not minimized, uh, namely the vision issues, you know, positioning is still required with oil people, um, you know, patients sometimes don't realize that, you know, it's still acting in the same manner, it's, it's acting to exclude uh, water by its surface tension. 
Um, of course, you need another surgery uh, to remove it. So you're kind of already signing the patient up for um, another um, surgery. Um, you don't, I always consent patients that, you know, we're very good at getting 99% of the oil out, but the last 1% can persist and people need to be aware of that. Um, uh, it's and having an inappropriate fill um, or having an appropriate fill rather is an art. Um, you have to be really careful. It's, uh, it's not that hard to overfill or significantly underfill an eye. Um, uh, you know, we didn't uh, also talk about PVR, you know, in Europe, they use a lot of heavy oil. And what's fascinating is that when heavy oil is used, um, you get PVR superiorly. Uh, whereas in the U S we kind of see PVR inferiorly. So it's something about where the aqueous, um, bubble is, is oriented is where PVR develops. Um, and of course the elephant is the room, uh, is all of the, you know, what I would consider, uh, significant risks with oil, the risk of, uh, keratopathy, uh, or, uh, corneal decompensation, um, the acute and long-term uh, challenges with uh, glaucoma um, that can develop, um, and, and many other things. I mean, it's a um, it's interesting looking as we were discussing, you know, earlier uh, about the challenges of oil and would that have even been approved today um, if it were if, if you know if it was kind of being developed today? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, it, was, it was approved in a different era in medicine. Um, there's a lot of a lot of problems with oil. And I think that's a great point. At the end, we were chatting about approval. Well, we're, first of all, all three of us are very grateful that oil was approved because um, there are certainly situations where gas simply is not going to be the best option for a patient, and oil will be, um, especially a patient with frequent redetachments, high risk of redetachment, travel reasons we talked about earlier. Um, but you know, it's, it is there is a reason why if we have a patient who comes to us who's like, man, I really want to go, like Tony was saying, on that trip to Disneyland in two weeks. And you're like, you know, if it was my eye, knowing what I know as a retinal surgeon, I probably would rather cancel that trip, right? And have gas, all things being equal, than have oil because the oil is a permanent sort of change for your eye. Um, vitrectomy is a permanent change for your eye, but but oil is a, a bigger permanent change as you reference. You don't, Tony said you get, you don't get all of that oil out, Tommy, you were saying, and then um, there's glaucoma risk. Things that probably were not picked up when oil was approved, like what about unexplained vision loss after oil yeah. removal? We don't talk about that often in the field. We've never done a podcast on it because I guess there's not really much to talk about except hypotheses about why it happens, but it's not a low percentage. You know, I think people have quoted six to 8%. So, so we have these limitations, right? Um, and again, there's no one size fits all approach to patients. High myopes, oil isn't a great option because it doesn't conform to the shape of a staphyloma. And then you get stuck right. in this cycle is like, well, you need to use gas, but if they have a high redetachment rate and they redetach, then use oil, but it doesn't achieve what you want to achieve. People have talked about heavy oil, which, which we referenced, right? We don't have that available in the US, but it's heavy oil isn't perfect either. So it's not like going to heavy oil would fix all our problems. And finally, people have talked about PFO as a temporary sort of vitreous substitute. Steve Charles and others have talked about using it for inferior detachments, using it for autologous transplantation but it's a temporary thing because it's retina toxic. You can't use it for too long. It carries risk of, P of IOP increase, glaucoma. It also can be left in the eye and cause retention issues. So, so this is not meant to be depressing because obviously we're very blessed as retinal surgeons, but this is what you two were thinking about is okay, like this is still not ideal. So if I take it back to I ideal, Tony, so like if you were a patient and you're like in the year 2100, I'm gonna have retinal surgery. I want it to be ideal what would kind of be the gold standard in your mind? Like, this is what we should strive to achieve. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, we all live and sort of have our perspective of what we trained and what, you know, things, uh, how things are in the moment. And we just sort of anchor our, 
our um, thoughts based on that perspective. But if you kind of step back and you say, what is the purpose of gas and oil? Um, what is the purpose of a tamponade? Um, you know, really the only purpose is basically to exclude fluid from getting between the retina and the RPE while your laser bur burns are forming. Um, and you, you know, you're not gonna get that adhesion between the retina and the RPE um, from the laser if fluid is in the way, you're gonna get, it's gonna be the attachment right, right again, right? So um, I think part of, you know, what we've been working on for the last few years is thinking about a simpler way um, to address this, uh, which would be basically to just focally apply um, a glue or a sealant to the retinal break that would be safe and well tolerated and that would allow fluid not to access that space while the retinal uh, laser forms the retinal core, um, RPE adhesion. Um, the whole thing, you know, if, if we just started with that and then someone proposed gas and oil and positioning and floating things in the right direction, that would sound um, very odd. <laughs> but the other way around, you know, it's, it, it, even though when you kind of think of it, you get to that point, um, eventually, it, it wasn't obvious that you could kind of step back and take a much simpler approach, perhaps, to treating retinal detachment. So I think, um, hopefully, what we or others um, are going to achieve is a way of sealing retinal breaks focally um, and doing that in a safe way, and in a way that's easy to do in the operating room, um, and get away from filling the whole eye with anything, whether that be gas, oil, or some other substance. Um, one thing that we've learned from experience is that if you fill the eye with um, anything, us and others have shown, you're going to run into problems. You know, if something is going to biodegrade and clear from the eye and it's completely filled with it, um, at least in some patients, you're going to have problems with clearance. You're going to have problems with inflammation. Um, and so putting the smallest amount of a foreign material in the eye um, is always going to be the safest approach across the population. So, um, yeah, I think it's about stepping back to what you're actually trying to do here, which is just seal the break mm -hmm. and filling the whole eyes is, is um, not required. And Jay, just to follow up on that, I mean, I think, um, you know, when we were thinking about this of like, okay, is there a better way to seal retinal, better way to fix RDs? I mean, we kind of took it from the patient perspective that we were saying, you know, in, you know, 2100, when a patient undergoing retina surgery, it would be ideal if RD surgery could look like modern FACO. Like, yeah, you got to wear an eye patch for a couple of days, but there's no positioning, you know, your vision starts to restore faster. That was kind of our vision of what we wanted to achieve it was kind of a patient centric approach, you know, to allow patients to um, recover from the surgery much faster than they are today. Yeah. And, and, and you got, you bring up an interesting point in terms of like being more specific, right? Cause it seems a little bit, we, again, we take it for granted, but if let's say you have a patient who has two retinal breaks and one is at 10 o'clock and one is at, not, uh, let's put it on the other side, two o'clock, right? We do this surgery, we laser the breaks, and maybe not everyone uses a complete fill, but you're filling way more of the eye than you would need to ideally, right? To cover those breaks. So the idea of a sealant or something specifically to the breaks makes a lot of sense because we're essentially taking like the, you know, we're taking the, the, the we're going to cover everything effect. We're going to like, we're going to cover the whole eye. And that will cover these breaks, right? It's very rare, although we have some patients who have breaks everywhere, who have like 12 breaks at every single clock hour and you need to cover everything. Most of the time we're just over covering to, to compensate because we really can't get the gas to cover two places because of the physical properties of gas oil to cover two places on opposite sides of the eye. 
Tony, there's going to be some old hats listening who are like, you know what? People have talked about glue before for the retina. People have talked about using some sort of seal and there are problems with it, right? There's toxicity issues that have to be addressed. It could be a scaffold for PVR. Um, we saw a great presentation. I'm not going to reveal any secrets because Vail is a closed meeting, but we saw a great presentation about using glue, for example, in diabetics to prevent bleeding. Um, and that was brought up as a criticism, right? It was like, well, could this be a scaffold? So again, and, and you guys can dive a little bit into what you're designing. How do you sort of address those concerns? Because that has always been the concern with using anything that is a true quote unquote sealant is it could become an issue for fibrosis, PVR, et cetera. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of concerns when you're just, you know, designing something from scratch. Um, kind of our approach was to make a list of all the criteria that we want. You know, we wanted it to be, um, be clear, you know, so have, have a, a normal, uh, same refractive index as vitreous so that, you know, it wouldn't have a refractive shift. We wanted it to um, be easily formed, be, be able to be easily used in the operating room, be shelf stable. We wanted it to be able to be injected through the tiny cannulas that we do the surgery through. Uh, we wanted it to um, biodegrade into tiny particles that uh, after a few weeks um, and clear from the eye and we didn't want it to be inflammatory, et cetera, et cetera. So you make this whole list of ideal characteristics. Um, and then, you know, we're not polymer chemists. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we know when to sort of call in the real experts. And um, we uh, basically worked with polymer chemists to identify, uh, you know, a, a way in which you could uh, develop a polymer system that would have a good chance of being biocompatible and would degrade the tiny particles and be injected to the ports and satisfy all those criteria. And then, you know, you got to do, you got to do testing. So, um, you know, I don't know about you. I, I really wouldn't, everyone's always saying this, this, this shampoo wasn't tested on an animal. I'm like, well, that's not how we do it in medicine. Okay. <laughs> we, we test it before we do it in humans and um, it's empirical. And, uh, you know, we definitely wouldn't, would not act like uh, the first thing we, we came up with worked. Um, you know, rabbits are sensitive animals, uh, so are pigs. Um, and, you know, you're looking for a tolerability. You're, we're making retinal detachments and seeing how it works and seeing if they do get PVR. So, you know, working through that process in animals to try to identify the best candidate you want to advance to the, to the clinic. Um, and then you're indebted to, uh, to the patients that are willing to try something new. Um, and in our pilot clinical trial that we're conducting right now, um, you know, we started with patients that had very poor visual prognosis, patients that could not position. Um, and, you know, you start, start with those types of patients and make sure it's, it's well tolerated and, and tweak it if necessary as you go. But um, yeah, you don't want to just say it's not going to work from the very top and we should leave everything the same, even though that's the easiest way um, to go and to finish your day to day. But if you want to advance something and, and develop something new for the field, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Um, and you'll have to navigate that as, as you go. There's also a philosophical point to be made and that there are problems in search of a technology and there are technologies in search of a problem. Hmm. The femtosecond laser was not built and designed to do capsulotomies. Right. Okay. And similarly, it hasn't had a huge uptake because, well, that, you know, that problem has pretty good solutions already. And, you know, we similarly did not like, you know, pick uh, a glue and say, hey, let's like use this for, you know, a retinal break. We started with the problem. We said, here are, here's the problem we have and how can we design, you know, the perfect solution? Let's like build towards that and see what's out there. And so I think a lot of the things that you're saying, you know, because I think this was like a clinician built uh, 
solution. You know, we kind of started off with beginning with the problems and going towards uh, the solution rather than kind of something that was, oh, you know, this is off the shelf and maybe it could work for this too. We thought that was the superior way of addressing the, you know, of, of going to solve about solve the problem. That's a, that's a fantastic point. And that comes up in research too. You know, are you coming up with something that you think will get published and then you figure out that, or do you actually identify something in clinic or in a patient? You're like, oh, this is a problem. Like what would actually help us understand this better? Um, so we've been teasing the listeners long enough. So there's some of them who may not know about about what you guys are doing, uh, Tommy. So to tell them, I mean, you've referenced some things. You talked, Tony talked about the animal studies you're doing. So, so tell us a little bit, as much as you're able to, mm-hmm. about what it is you're designing, where it is in terms of testing, and then we can kind of talk about the good things and sort of the, the like bumps in the road, like Tony was talking about, that have happened during this process. Sure. So uh, Tony and um, Tony and I started uh, about six years ago, a company, uh, it was called Picus Therapeutics. We were actually residents at the time. And the mission of the company, um, was to make retinal surgery, uh, retinal attachment surgery easier to recover from. And we, uh, developed, have developed a polymer, uh, that is used to seal retinal breaks. So the polymer works like an epoxy. There's two components you mix them and once they are mixed, that begins the process of this forming essentially like a glue. And the approach that we have taken has evolved over time as we have gained data and animals and then early in our uh, clinical trial. Uh, We're currently conducting a first in human adaptive clinical trial in Australia in patients uh, who have retinal detachments to basically define, uh, define the best parameters of how to use this. Um, the, uh, we recently presented, um, uh, a little bit of data at, uh, the VidBuckle Society meeting, uh, the study's ongoing, so we can't kind of present a full set of data, but at the, at the VBS meeting in Las Vegas, we were approaching this, uh, presenting the surgical technique of what we're doing. So I can share that. Essentially the retinal detachment is fixed in the usual manner during vitrectomy, um, all the vitreous traction is relieved. Uh, you do a peripheral shave. You'd go to air, flatten the retina, and then you apply your retinopexy. And at that time, uh, you then take the epoxy and you mix it. You mix the two components, which initiates a cross-linking reaction. Um, and then this, uh, uh, the gel begins to form and it behaves uh, kind of like viscose. It looks kind of like a thick viscous liquid. And uh, we designed like a curved cannula uh, with like a little brush on the end. And then the surgeon... Uh, just applies a little dollop of this kind of viscose-like substance to each break. Uh, But it is um, basically like a glue, a very gentle glue. It's going on the retina. But wherever you put that, that will remain. Um, And then at the end of surgery, the surgeon can either um, go back to fluid and refill the whole eye or just leave it under air. Uh, And the eye just kind of refills over the next uh, five days or so. Uh, It's... uh, uh, early days, uh, the study is ongoing. Uh, we're hoping to present the full data at ASRS this summer, uh, but uh, the uh, results have been really encouraging. Um, so Tony had presented one case where a patient was light perception pre-op and on post-operative day five, he was 2040 uh, with a beautiful uh, foveal contour. Um, 
And so uh, that's essentially what we're, uh, what we're doing. And the advantages of this is that there's no patient positioning. You know, the patient's told not to go on a trampoline, you know, but otherwise they can live kind of a normal, uh, you know, normal life postoperatively like one would do after FACO uh, with a pretty uh, quick visual recovery. Um, and so I think if the, if the study continues to look um, uh, as promising as it does now, you know, the next steps obviously will be larger studies to address some of the things that you were, you know, asking about, you know, is there risks of uh, PBR, uh, all these other kind of considerations? Yeah, that, that, that's phenomenal. And, you know, I think that to Tony's point, one of the things you talked about was the fulfill idea, right? Um, in our current substitutes, gas, there doesn't seem to be a huge issue with underfilling, unless you're not covering what you want to cover. Tom, you talked about the issues with oil underfills and how it can be worse to have an oil underfill than a gas underfill, which is something I think when you're starting your retina career, maybe you don't appreciate, but as you go along and learn kind of the things that can happen, you realize emulsification and actual tamponade effect is reduced with an oil underfill. In terms of using this hydrogel, right? So one of the phenomenal advantages you pointed out was the ability to go back to fluid if you wanted. Patient could be fluid filled, could be seeing post-op day one, like this is unheard of for retinal detachment surgery treated with vitrectomy in, you know, 2022. I mean, that's just not part of what we counsel patients. Our whole, I feel my whole counseling spiel would have to be rewritten in my head in terms of what would patients expect. There's been other issues discussed that we haven't even gotten into with using tamponade, right? There, that have been brought up by Rajiv Mooney and Els, Tony, things like metamorphopsia, distortion, anisoconia, retinal displacement. I mean, these are things that retinal surgeons really haven't worried about because we're just like, we just want to attach the retina and move on. But there now seems to be some evidence that tamponade in positioning, while it's good for covering breaks, may not be awesome for addressing patients' actual vision symptomatology, especially if there's a MAC-involving detachment. It seems that one of the advantages to your hydrogel would be to avoid that, right? So if there is no positioning, there's nothing actually in contact with the central retina then you get more of that physiologic pumping of the RPE, which could be advantageous for preventing some of those problems. Yeah, um, it's a great point. And this was not something that we sort of preconceived when we were thinking about, you know, our focus was on eliminating the burdens of gas and oil. And um, I don't know, we always just assumed, and maybe this is not um, correct, that once the macula detaches, the photoreceptors are dying. And, you know, even when you put the retina back, um, you know, you're going to have 20, 50, 20, 60, 2100 vision. Um, you know, I, I think when we present the full data at ASRS, we'll get a better picture. Um, but there might be something to it. And, um, you know, uh, I know Rob, Dr. Elliot, Dean Elliott, one of our mentors, uh, likes to, to cite Robert Mockamer um, all the time. Um, but um, he did, Mockamer did um, have a theory that leaving posterior subretinal fluid was actually good the patient's long-term vision um, because slow absorption of posterior SRF allowed the photoreceptors to kind of align better. And if you smashed the macula down while you flipped the patient face down right after finishing the surgery and you squeegeed all that fluid out or log rolled that fluid out, you're forcing the retina down in a, in a position that is probably not anatomic. And that may lead to, you know, uh, metamorphopsia um, and this does seem to be a, um, people are kind of returning to this, this thought process, but um, yeah, if you leave the eye with fluid, um, as long as the retinal breaks are sealed, um, then the subretinal fluid posteriorly should get reabsorbed naturally. 
And um, I guess it's possible. And hopefully our study, which had some light on whether um, we might actually get better vision in these MACOF patients with this approach. You know, just to, to kind of tie a bow on it, and, and again, I know you guys are limited in what you can show is it's evolving. I, I mean, it was seeing your presentations at Vail and VBS, there was already more data at VBS two weeks later versus Vail because this is an evolving situation. We've talked before about the stages that you have to take in drug and device development. And this is essentially what we consider an intraocular drug or substitute of some sort by the FDA. Um, it's a stepwise process, right? So you have this trial that's ongoing in Australia Let's take us, you know, there are going to be listeners who are students or fellows who are thinking like, man, I have this great idea. I want to do something. This is, I, what is it actually involved? So, so actually let's go backwards first. So take us back. So you have this idea, right? You said you found someone who can put this together, but then there's funding that needs to be obtained. You need to present to people. These are skills that you don't generally learn as a resident or fellow in ophthalmology and retina. You have to go and then you have to go and figure out animal studies like you guys did, then human studies. So like, take us back a little bit, Tony, the process of getting it off the ground from a funding perspective. And then if you're looking ahead, even in the best case scenario, what's that timeline look like in terms of this hitting the market? What are sort of the different hurdles you have to cross when you're outlining your plan? That's a really good question. It, it would require, you know, several drinks and a full dinner probably to, to tell you the, <laughs> the story. Um, but the, the short version is, is that, um, a, a couple of things come to mind. One is we were talking to a, um, well-known venture capitalist who's in the ophthalmology space way back in the day. And he basically, uh, in a very nice way, told us to just, if you think of an idea, a great idea while you're cooking dinner, um, just, just go ahead and finish cooking dinner and, and mm. let it go because, uh, lots of people have good ideas, but very, very, very few people can actually see it through. Um, so, you know, I think the main thing is you got to be really committed. You know, it, 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 no one else is going to do the hard work for you. Um, you know, so um, a great idea is, I mean, it's a special thing. Um, but lots of people have thought about this before. Um, lots of people have thought about a lot of things before. And so um, clearly executing and kind of moving from one step to the next is, um, and having stamina and fortitude is, is sort of the, the, the major key. Um, you can't do anything without money. Um, that is true. Uh, we were very lucky to be, you know, in Boston, um, in the Harvard ecosystem. And um, uh, really things kind of started with um, the Harvard Innovation Lab. There's a, there's like a project at Harvard where they will, uh, they have a competition. They kind of put you in touch with um, key people in the space, lawyers, people that can help with regulatory concerns. You sort of kind of learn on the fly. It's almost like going to school at night, learning a lot of these things. Um, and I think, I don't remember the exact number, but I think we, we got second place or I think second place mm -hmm. in that. And we got like $25,000 and we thought we were loaded. <laughs> I mean, we were, it was like amazing. And um, yeah, you know, you just move from one step to the next, the 25 turns into 100 and, and you know, you move on on down the line with, with um, getting more and more interest and more and more funds. Um, you know, another funny quote that comes to mind was we were talking to one venture capitalist very early on and um, we didn't have any animal data and we had a great story and he was like, all right, well, go catch a rabbit, do it in a one rabbit and then come back and talk to me and, you know, I'll, and then I'll, I'll hear you out. Hmm. 
Um, and so we were Googling, can you just like, can, can you do that? <laughs> Turns you out cannot. you cannot do <laughs> no, that. I don't think it works that way. <laughs> Definitely not, not legal to do that. But um, yeah, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, um, and, you know, if the idea is good and important and the people behind it are, are going to stick with it, um, the funding does seem to kind of take care of itself. And so just kind of one step at a time, raising more and more money um, allowed us to um, move, keep moving to the next step. I think one also important comment for uh, the listeners who are thinking about doing this is that we are really in like a golden era um, for biotech, medtech, innovation, investment. Um, and like we also shortly after winning the or getting second place in the Harvard competition, uh, we competed in this like much larger prize called Mass Challenge, where we were competing against like all kinds of companies, not just like, you know, bioinnovation, like consumer products. Yeah, one, one company and, was uh, someone could turn their clothes into a tent. <laughs> um, sounds like Shark Tank. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. And uh, we actually ended up winning. There was like four grand prizes and we won one of them. And I think we were kind of like shocked a little bit because we still thought of ourselves as, I don't know, not like sophisticated. But I think whenever um, investors see a physician um, who is like, you know, passionately pursuing a problem and, you know, planning to commit a major part of their life to advancing this, like Tony and I still see patients and operate, but like this is half our week. You'd be surprised, I think. Um, as we were surprised how seriously you will be taken. And uh, even though we didn't have all of the um, answers at the time, you know, uh, being in like the, in a supportive environment and just being a physician and just, you know, having that uh, really counts for a lot. I think more than we give ourselves credit for. So um, there's, again, there's a whole, uh, there's a lot more to it, but I think that if it's a wonderful um, like American experience to start a company and go through this process, um, and a lot of people, you know, um, have done it and will follow us. And so I think it's something that, you know, it does, it is a marathon. It's a long journey. Um, the analogy I always give is it's like building a space shuttle. You know, it only takes a faulty O-ring to, you know, blow up the whole project. And there's a lot of decisions we make every day. We're always hoping we're making the wrong ones, but it's also, you know, it's just one step in front of the other, you know, just, just keep running, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what we tried to, to do over the years. Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's such a great, I think you guys, um, I'm sure every generation has innovators uh, and um, I'm sure you're not, you're not the only innovators our generation, but but I think what you're doing, like you said, Tommy, it's emblematic of a very rich time to do this. Um, it's a generation of retinal surgeons that is kind of at a crossroads where we have this amazing technology that's come to this far doing retinal surgery eats up less of your day-to-day than it did in 1992, just because the surgeries have gotten more efficient. You know, it'd be a lot more of a burden on your life to do a four-hour GRT with a striker table and then have to go home and try to think of ideas than today where we have all the things that have taken to the point where it's like, hey, you can actually sit and think and like approach problems and fix our unmet needs. So again, I want to applaud both of you for what you're doing, but I also think it's uh, inspirational to a lot of people out there who may have ideas. And like you said, the hardest thing is seeing something through. Uh, and that's the biggest barrier, but um, you're an example of people who even in training, you know, you're able to come together, come up with an idea. You don't have to be an attending, you know, who's been in practice for 35 or 40 years to get be taken seriously. It helps to have a mentor, like you had Dean Elliott, it helps to have people around you supportive, but you guys have done a fantastic job and uh, we're all excited. And we've been hearing about this, you know, for a few years. I think, I believe you presented it at VBS maybe a couple of years ago as a cool new idea, maybe 2019 or so. 
2018. I don't remember the exact year. It's just been cool to watch the evolution. Um, hopefully, you know, it does change the way we operate. And I think that that's a good thing. If we can always get better and adapt and, and become, have more options, at least for our patients, that's a better thing. Um, final thing. And I think this is always an interesting question. You guys are partners, obviously you've been friends. You have to be friends as well to do this. Um, I think that, you know, it's funny to talk about Harvard. Harvard is the site of the social network, the famous Zuckerberg Sabarin fallout. You know, how do you how do you guys manage your disagreements? I'm sure there's things that you guys don't always agree eye to eye. You have to decide on, you know, which funder to take, which trial to do, how to design this. How do you guys divide up the responsibilities of doing this company together? Because obviously it's much easier to take this journey with someone else who's smart and motivated. So you're not alone because uh, we can cover for each other. But I'm always curious how people balance out decision-making when there's two of you. And I'm sure you both have strong opinions about things that don't always align. Well, the first comment uh, I'll just make is uh, just actually the second part of what you said is that um, I think if anyone is thinking about doing this, I think it's, I would say, almost critical to have a co-founder because over the years, um, we've had a, a lot of like, uh, you know, almost O-ring moments where we're like, oh my God, this is it. We finally, we finally cannot find go forward. And invariably, like one of us is like super depressed and the other one's like, no, no, we're going to figure it yeah, out. Right, we're going right, to keep right. going. And yeah. if it was just like one person, you know, it'd be probably easier to quit. Um, I think that's like a big advantage of having someone else is sort of, uh, um, you know, you just, we kind of alternate uh, who the cheerleader is. You know, we just, it's, it's really, um, it's not only just splitting up the workload, but it's just really good to have this process go with another person. Um, it is interesting, um, you know, because it is a very intense project, you know, um, uh, you obviously become very close to this person uh, that you're doing it with and disagreements like naturally will arise. Um, Tony and I were like really good friends at first. We were like, you know, we were co-residents and we kind of just like, I don't know, personality wise, we first were just like friends and then we decided to go work on this. So that was helpful that we at least liked each other <laughs> before this started. Um, so, you know, a lot of times I think it's also just helpful to have, like we have other members of our team. Um, and so, you know, uh, a lot of times is that, uh, you know, we might have differing opinions and, you know, we have other people on the team to kind of bounce the ideas off of, you know, sort of like neutral parties. And I think that's always helpful to have, have something like that. Um, it's also just like kind of just basic, like good governance um, that you don't get in a situation where like one person's kind of making all the, you know, rules. I think that we try to, um, we try to have just a, we have a lot of very experienced people, um, not necessarily like, you know, retina people, but uh, people who've done this before, like develop products for other things. And, you know, it's just good to have a, kind of more people to bounce the ideas off of. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say it is, you do have a relationship with the people you work with, you know, just like you have a relationship with your partners in practice. Um, and so there's a relationship aspect, but um, I think the thing we do a good job at is kind of letting the data and the best decision just kind of like, just go with it, whether it's Tommy's idea or he's really stuck on this idea, but I'm like, it's definitely not, the right way to go with this particular thing. And then you, you know, I, I think we're willing to back off of strongly held positions uh, when, when the data, um, you know, suggests that perhaps the other person's approach is, is the way to go. So um, yeah, you definitely have to check your ego and your, um, in your own sort of personal desires at the door for, um, and work together as a team um, to get, to get to the end goal that, that you both want and that the whole team wants um, it's definitely not easy. Um, and, uh, I admire my, you know, anyone who's been married for a long period of time, because, uh, you know, it's hard, uh, to, um, to be in an intense, uh, working relationship with someone, but, um, I don't think I could have done a 
I don't think I, I definitely couldn't have done it by myself. And I, I think it would be very difficult to um, do anything like this by yourself. Um, because uh, like Tommy said, you know, it is, uh, it's so much work and there's so much ups and downs. And even though it's so exciting, um, it really is, I think, critical to, to share the process with someone else. Well, um, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. I appreciate the work you're putting in. Hopefully it inspires other people to, uh, to pursue their kind of dreams and goals, think of problems. I think it's so funny you talked about the, um, you know, we're talking about Makamer and the idea of pushing the retina back in place. It's, sometimes Alan Ho told me this when I was a fellow. He says, usually it's the students or residents who come up with the best questions because they're not pre-biased. They don't yeah. fall. They, they haven't, they don't, they just don't accept things. They're just like asking questions innocently. I remember a medical student was watching was like, so how do you, how do you know when the retina goes back into place that it's back in the exact spot where it was before? Mm. And we were kind of yeah. like, well, you, you don't, you just kind of, <laughs> it kind of does, but it also kind of doesn't, you know, it doesn't always exactly fall exactly where you want it to be. So um, it's great that you guys are, are pursuing this. I wish you best of luck. And I'm sure we're going to hear more and more about this as the meetings and the years roll on. Um, thanks again for your time, Tony and Tommy, and, uh, we'll hopefully, uh, we'll have you on in the future to talk about an approved product. Thanks, Jay. It was great being with you. Thanks, Jay. Thanks again to Dr. Stefan Ernstrievsky for coming on the podcast to talk about Vitreous Tamponades. Listeners, remember all 341 episodes, including this one can be found on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. They are sorted, searchable by category, and easy to go back to and listen. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. You can subscribe on the website to get updates on the most recent episodes. And remember that you can reach out to us in many ways. You can email us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com or click on the contact us link on our website. Many thanks to Drs. Angela Chang, Louis Kai, and Mike Vinacasa for all the work they do behind the scenes to produce this podcast and release it on social media. Listeners, thank you for everything you do, the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here each week, and most importantly, the patients whose lives you affect every single day. The world would not be the same without you all doing what you do, so thank you. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. The feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye.